Hi everyone, I'm welcoming you to another episode of Reproducibility. I'm Amy Orban and I'm with... Yeah, and as you notice, I'm probably with no one. And there's a specific reason for this. So I actually really royally messed up our recording of the last episode. So I'm actually meant to record the episode from my computer and I, I was, but... By accident, I wasn't recording the wonderful voices of Sam Parsons, Sophia Cruvel, and our guest, Leonid Tiokin. I was just recording my own voice, um, and we don't really know why that happened, but that meant that, yeah, the, the recording wasn't as interesting as, as we hoped. So actually, crisis was kind of averted because Sophia was doing a kind of safety recording. Um, It's a bit lower quality than normal, so please excuse us. Um, And the only other big problem is that it started 10 minutes into our actual recording. Um, So instead of just making you jump into, you know, a conversation we were having with Leo, we thought that it might be good for me to kind of just get you up to scratch with what we were talking about um, and why we, why we were interested in the topic in general. So Leo is actually a postdoc with Daniel Lackens in Eindhoven um, and he works on really cool reproducibility stuff. So he's especially interested in incentive structures and how incentives um, affect researchers. And he has done some incredible work, including a registered report, which he'll tell us a lot more about in the podcast. By training, Leo is actually not a psychologist, so he's an anthropologist and has quite an interesting life story getting to where he is now, which is kind of in the south of the Netherlands. So Leo was doing an anthropology bachelor's degree when he was assisting a professor to uh, do some research and I think like probably quite a lot of us um, listeners and, and early career researchers in open science he noticed that maybe things weren't as you would expect science to be you know a lot of things were um, not as the scientific practice, let's just say it like this, the scientific practice didn't live up to what you would expect from your scientific training. So after his undergrad, he actually went abroad to Southeast Asia to um, do some research as well. And there, that thought cemented itself because fieldwork in anthropology seems, well, it just seems really messy. Um, And this messiness isn't portrayed in the literature. And so it's very hard to know what to trust. So Leo actually then spent quite a bit of time traveling um, and then went back to the States and started a kind of quite dull office-like job um, where he couldn't really, you know, people would just tell you what to do. And he started realizing again that it might make sense to go back into academia. He applied for grad school, got into grad school and and spent... um, was thinking of doing a specific topic um, for his PhD. At the same time, he was seeing the reproducibility crisis, um, the whole conversation about better scientific practices involved in psychology, and that caught his interest. And at one point during his PhD, he decided to change tack and completely focus on 
parts of these reproducibility crises, which he thought he could really um, add to with his theoretical knowledge and his anthropological knowledge. So he started looking at incentive structures. Um, This is almost all from me um, filling you in before we can you know, jump into the actual recording and hear Leo's own words talking about his work. But um, I, yeah, the, the conversation really starts with a discussion about whether you should take advice on where people say, oh, I think you should research X or Y topic because that will allow you to have a better chance at the job market. We all know that it's incredibly difficult to get a tenured position or even a tenure track position um, in whatever country in academia. And we know that um, that causes a lot of anxiety in early career researchers. So if close, people close to you tell you that you should be researching a certain topic because it will increase your chances in the job market, should you decide to leave behind the things that really interested you and really made you want to join academia to focus on something that might be seen more worthwhile by others or should you stick by what you really want to study and really believe in so enough from me let's let's hear what leo had to say about it Like, yeah, sure, maybe that does increase your probability of getting a job a little bit. I don't know, but the fact that it just kills the biggest, like, reason you're in it in the first place is, like, it's not the money. It's, like, you're interested in this thing, right? And then in grad school, you're already told, like, no, but, like, yeah, I know you're interested in that, but actually do this other thing. It's just, why am I even in academia if I can't study the thing I'm interested in? I feel like I've seen... I've tried to not succumb to that to the most extent that I can. Of course, I still have, but I've seen other people, uh, like, really, I think, do things for strategic reasons, and then it's really hard to keep motivation in grad school because you're working for two or three years on shit you don't really care about, but you think, like, oh, maybe this will lead to a good pub, and then, yeah, but, but you need to, you know, it's a marathon, right? So good luck sustaining yourself for five years working on some shit you don't care about. Yeah, also, like, you're sort of, like, eroding the idealism that you have from the beginning. Like, that sounds so sad, right? And also not very very productive. I think also, and this is something that I think we've talked about previously, um, and that's something that Dorothy Bishop does mention a lot when talking in Oxford. It's like, you, you, if you go into academia, you're not, as you said, you're not going in for the money or for the prestige or for the amazing working hours. You know, you're going in because this is an opportunity for you to do something that you're interested in and do, you know, kind of hopefully progress our understanding of something a bit further, you know, a very small bit further towards some sort of ultimate truth, even though we'll never reach it. But like, you know, succumbing to pressures to look at something that you don't like or to... Uh, do questionable research practices when you know that that's wrong. Um, you know that will that will rid you of that important kind of zest for doing what you want to do, which will sustain you in times where it's really hard. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's nice to see that like U-turns or or 
where you you start noticing that something is wrong, that you're not doing things at the quality that you want to do, or you're not doing what you want to do, or somebody has pressured you into doing something. That those are quite common, and and that that's fine. And I I don't know. I I just find it nice to hear that 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 you know other people have gone through kind of parts like that. I'm rambling now, um, but yeah. But we all agree, so it's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just I think it's 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 a conversation that we don't have enough because you yeah you often think oh the people when I went into grad school and I saw the the you know the people I look up to in the last year of their grad school experience and you're just like wow they they had everything sorted from the beginning you know oh and 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 in the end it's it's probably just. Yeah, you you don't see the whole story behind an academic career most of the time. Mm. Cool, but let's talk about incentives. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I mean it's very simple. Basically, um, uh, you just pick up any meta science review paper, like uh, you know, what is it, manifesto for reproducible science, or take your pick, or something, and people talk about how. Yeah, the reason, one fundamental reason why people do, you know, low-powered research or questionable research practices or whatever is because of the incentives. Um, and it's very plausible that it's, you know, probably true, but, you know, um, when you look at what evidence we actually have for the fact that uh, people engage in that, you know, incentives... Uh, uh, incentivize, <laughs> incentives incentivize poor quality research. It's actually not very good. Um, just one example I sometimes use in talks is if you look at the manifesto for reproducible science in the incentive section, it basically cites three papers. Uh, one of them is like that 2012 uh, paper by Brian Nozick all about restructuring incentives, which is just like a verbal argument, and it I means cites some stuff, but it's just kind of a think piece. And then it cites natural selection about science, which is just like one model that fixes a bunch of parameters and it's just like a proof of concept, uh, basically. And then it cites another paper by Marcus Minoffo, because Minoffo is the one that wrote the Manifest of Reproducible Science, uh, about, uh, current incentives leading to underpowered studies, which is, I think, a more general model, but I have tried to read it three times and I can't understand it at all. I don't think it's as clear as it could be. Uh, and so, and that's it. And so for me, it seems like the, the claims about out current incentives uh, having detrimental effects on both scientists' behavior and on the scientific process are much further ahead of where we are with empirical or theoretical evidence. And notice that none of those current things I cited, they've two, the two things that were actually non, just like think pieces, are just theoretical models. Also, it's not um, any empirical evidence. And so um, a friend of mine, Maxime Virex, who studies, um, who does... Uh, Experimental, uh, like he studies cultural evolution, and uh, and his main uh, 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 thing he does is experimental tests of different hypotheses uh, within the field of yeah, cultural evolution. Um, uh, we were friends, and he was supposed to talk at ASU, and so we were just talking about this, and we thought, ah, let's just do a simple test of uh, of one incentive uh, affecting. Uh, how one incentive affects people's 
behavior in sort of a paradigm that mimics, maybe we can come up with an experimental paradigm that mimics some aspects of the scientific process. And so, uh, yeah, so basically we made a simple little game borrowing, uh, uh, modifying uh, a task, uh, a previously existing task, where what people do is there's just like a grid with 25 squares, and those squares are all black, but you can click on the squares, and underneath they're either blue or yellow. And on the grid, one of the colors is always in the majority. And so, like, for instance, there might be 15 blue squares and 10 yellow squares, you know, or 13 yellow and 12 blue. And you get, you're incentivized to just guess the correct color of the grid. And uh, so the more information you sample, the higher the probability that you get a right answer, but also it takes more time so you can solve less problems. And also in our experiment, um, we have some conditions where people are competing against someone else to be first to uh, get the correct answer on the grid. And so what we wanted to do is to test uh, the effect of one one long-standing sort of norm within academic science, and that's the, the priority rule that individuals who are first to make discoveries uh, or that individuals that have novel results receive disproportionate benefits to individuals who come second or third. And so we want to just see in a simple paradigm like this that mimics some aspects of science where, you know, there's quantity quality trade-offs, you can solve more problems by gaining less information on each one, and then there's incentives for priority and some of the conditions um, that, you know, you need to be first in order to be able to get any points. How does this affect people's behavior? And then we also saw how it, we also looked at, in, in a separate set of conditions, how it affected individuals' effort, like instead of being able to just click a tile every one second, for instance, and people needed to solve math problems to uh, click tiles. And so the idea was maybe we could look at uh, a beneficial effect of incentives for priority as well, and that it might incentivize people to work harder on the same problems. Um, so yeah, it was a very simple design. Um, and um, you I was thinking about whether to do this as a registered report or to just pre-register it. And the pre-registration was like super tempting because I'm just like, yeah, just pre-register it and then we can just run it now. Like, I don't have to wait six months. Like, I don't know where I'll be. Like, what if, you know, I don't know, you know, what if uh, I happen to get a postdoc or something like this then and then I have like two two months or something to like rush and finish this up. And, um, um, and I don't even remember why... I think it was like this internal conflict I had for a while, and um, and I guess we decided to do a registered report because I was excited about the registered report's format, and so I had to like, I thought that, okay, you know, that this temptation to do the pre-registration and do it quickly, but, you know, it would be really nice if I could, if I could, it was just, I was just interested in like, okay, what would it be like to do a registered report? I've done pre-registrations. And so uh, I don't remember exactly if that was the reason or, or, or there were other things. But anyways, at some point I decided, you know what, no, like, let's do, let's do this. Let's do a registered report. It's going to be like, you know, we're going to learn a lot about, um, about uh, this, new, um, this new type of article. And uh, it's probably going to be a lot more work. But, like, yeah, let's do it. And so, um, yeah. And so it took a long time. Took way way more time than uh, any of the other pre any pre registrations I'd ever done. Um, 
a huge amount of things to specify in there and to figure out before we were able to run the study. Um, but I, I basically, we got lucky and things worked out pretty well. So like we submitted it and Chris Chambers was uh, the editor and got it to review very quickly. And, uh, we got very positive reviews. People thought it was a useful, like, you know, first step at trying to understand how incentives affected people's behavior. Um, and then, uh, Got it accepted basically at the same time that I found out that I had got this postdoc with Daniel. And so we had like three months actually to just run it, uh, run it at ASU and, uh, and, um, and yeah. And so I guess I should have described the results. No, actually, wait, before that, I, I was just wondering because you said, you said that it was, um, a lot more work than a pre-registration would have taken. Um, but like, do, do you think that was worth it? Um, do you think it, um, like what's, what kind of positive, like, what positives do you take away from that? Or was there, or were there parts of it that you, you were like, okay, actually, this wasn't necessary? Hmm. I mean, um, it's hard. So I'm biased because I think registered reports are a really nice format, at least for some types of research. So it would be weird, weird if I then said, like, yeah, it was just shit and not worth it. And <laughs> Um, I think we're all biased, but I felt like I should at least ask the question. Yeah. No, I think it made us do some things better. So, for instance, instead of me just doing like a quick and dirty power analysis, um, we ran a, we ran a pilot study, uh, got an idea for, um, the plausible distribution of effect sizes, um, which there was a lot of uncertainty about and then incorporated that uncertainty into power analysis we did and then realized that we needed more participants than we thought we needed. Um, but like doing the power analysis, I, I was, uh, we were doing statistical models within a Bayesian framework and I, I didn't know how to do, uh, uh, the right type of power analysis for our study using that. And so I had to, it took me uh, a month to figure out, uh, how to do that and things were running slow and how to optimize the code. Whereas I could have, you know, going to G power and just like doing it really quick would have taken five minutes. Um, so that was frustrating at the time, especially cause I thought, I thought, you know, I didn't know how long it was going to take. I was worried it was slowing down the study. Um, I think overall the quality of the work is much, much higher than it would have been had we just done a pre-registration because the pre-registration, you know, the reason people do shitty pre-registrations a lot of times is because you can just kind of, you know, do whatever, you know, you fill in the things with a few sentences. And, and so the register report really just forces you to up your game. Uh, and so I really like that. I feel like some things about it are a bit, um, they're interesting. I'm not sure if in a good or bad way, but for instance, so you have to specify what would serve as confirmatory or disconfirmatory evidence for your hypotheses, right? But the thing is, our hypotheses are, they're just directional predictions. Just like most positive, you know, people will get let get, gather less information and guess earlier and be less accurate when they're in competition for priority. That was our one of two of our hypotheses to so the accuracy and the less information. Um, but like, how big of an effect size would I consider evidence for my hypothesis? I mean, we have no principled good like theoretical reason or practical implication reason for specifying a minimum effect size of interest. And so we, we did it based on, uh, like the power, what effect, how, what power we had, what was 
the minimum effect says that we had reasonable power to detect, but like in retrospect, I think it's just that's shitty completely because one of our effects like was just outside the minimum thing we specified, which is completely arbitrary. So if it had been, you know, people, for instance, were, um, uh, what were they? They were like 7% less accurate. If it had been 6% less accurate, I would have had to say, oh, yeah, well, this is not conclusive evidence for our hypothesis or for the null, even though, the, you know, if we had done a frequency analysis, the p-value would have been 0.001, and the highest probability density interval wasn't anywhere close to zero. And so I think that there's a sense in which what we're asking from, like, a design is more than... It's like, it's more than what reasonably the we can expect the study to tell us. And like, we want it to be like, what, what will confirm or disconfirm your theory? But if you don't have a principled reason for knowing what would confirm or disconfirm it, the best, you know, it doesn't make sense to me to just then make one up. Um, so I think this is a, this is, this is a, an issue, but then, you know, it's not really an issue if you re actually read a paper and you realize, oh, they just set this up arbitrarily and that's fine. You know, I can actually just look at the parameter estimate for the effect. And, but the problem is you have to write it up in a way where it's like, here are my confirmatory analyses. Oh, look, there's, you know, based on my pre-specified criteria, I have to conclude that there's no evidence for a thing. Whereas actually it might be quite clear that there is. But um, I mean, do you, do you, do you still have to write it up like that even in the registered report format? Or do you think you have some, Freedom to be like, well, actually, let's just be transparent about all of the things and make people let the people make their own um, conclusions from this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, my impression was that you know you specify ahead of time what would be confirmatory, disconfirmatory, mm -hmm. and then in your write-up you then have your confirmatory analyses, which you said you were going to do, and so you must follow that through. And then in your exploratory section, you can then presumably say, yeah, but we think there's these issues with the confirmatory analysis and stuff. So I think you can easily. And you should, obviously, do which analyses you think are best and make the conclusions you think are reasonable, even if it's not what you pre-specified. But the problem is just that uh, it's more of like a practical problem. Like if people read the confirmatory section and just see that, um, they might take those more seriously, even though the better analyses are actually ones that you do an exploratory thing. Um, so, so, do you, so do you think that, so I mean... Just so that I understand it correctly, so like, is um, are you basically saying that that the the retro report format, at least in parts, is sort of assuming a stronger theory um, than than you have usually in psychology or in medicine, whatever, um, in anything, um, anything behavioral, I guess. Right, because I guess I guess if if you if you did have a um, if you did have a very strong theory about this, then you would be able to um, to specify these things in a way that makes sense and that doesn't just leave you in a space where you're like, well, you know, this was arbitrary and it was, yeah. I I don't know if I would say that it assumes a stronger theory. It what it does is it um, it forces you to like put all your cards in the table ahead of time and so it doesn't allow you to weasel out like that's one of the functions of it but the the problem is is that sometimes it it's kind of like i guess another way of saying what you're you're saying is it forces a level of specificity that our theories don't provide so it's kind of like um, let's say i had a theory and i could predict that you know it was going to rain on two of the days in March, uh, and I didn't specify ahead of time, 
which days it would be, and you think, yeah, like, that's probably true, okay, that's reasonable. And then I tried, and then you asked me, yeah, but which two days? And I had to specify which two days. The two days I specified would be completely arbitrary. I'm like, I don't know, my theory doesn't tell you anything about that, so I'm just basically guessing at random. Um, I don't think this is like a, you know, if, you know, the flip side is that if you don't specify mineral effects as interest, then anything goes, like the teeniest little effect, and you're like, yeah, am I, or, I think it's just something that we, it's a problem, but I don't think forcing more specificity from your theory than it actually, um, that it actually provides is the right solution. So I don't know what you guys think about how we can, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, you could, um, you could use practical implications to specify minimum effects as an interest, but that doesn't solve the fact that, like, if it doesn't solve the theory problem, it just solves the, like, okay, well, we don't know what our theory specifies, but we'll specify a, a minimum effect because, you know, this is the effect that we think would matter for some practical thing we care about. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I think, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And it's, I mean, probably like the main thing it does is sort of show that, that's, that, that, um, Right, because like by by forcing you to do that, you're like, oh wait, okay, I can't do that, and then maybe, um, as a as a field, we could also be like, well, actually, not very many people are able to do that, so do we have to change how we do things in general, right? Because I guess the, the reason why, um, the, why it's set up like this in the first place is because that's how it looked like people were doing research because they were because they were able to just um fix it up after the fact. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, this is a big, the, for me, you know, if your theory is so vague that any effect size in the direction that you predict is considered support for the theory, you're just, your tests, you know, your tests of the theory are just, you know, they're not, uh, I guess you could say they're not risky tests or they're not strong tests of theory because there's going to be, um, severe tests. Yeah. The probability that you find an effect in that direction is much higher than the probability that you find an effect within a given, uh, like within a given range or something. Mm. So, the more specific theories are, the easier it is to falsify them. The easier it is to tell the difference between theories too, because if you have ten theories that all predict something in the same direction, but none of them specify minimum effects as interest, then you just don't learn much about which theory is more likely to be true with these things. Um, so that's why it's nice to know. That's why, for instance, in the social sciences, what we do is, because things don't specify minimal effects, we look for domains where a theory makes a prediction, but other theories don't, or they make the opposite directional prediction, right? Mm-hmm. So you might be like, uh, um, I don't know, yeah, like, um, let's say that, let's say that, um, regardless of whether the, the effects of like menstrual cycle on mate choice are, are, uh, which ones are real or not, but like initially when it came out, uh, theory was like, oh, you know, when women are most fertile, they should prefer certain types of men, right? And no other like psychology theories made any predictions about that. So then when, um, when people, when you find this effect, um, even though there's no minimum effects as interest, the fact that there is some effect and no other theory kind of was like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if there should be an effect or not, the theory gains points, right? Because it, because it predicted something that others can't. So, so there's ways around that when you don't have a mineral effects of interest. But 
having having uh, some more specificity than just this thing should be in this direction is is very useful. I think we should work. People are working towards towards that, but I think we're we're far away from being at a point where that's the case. Yeah. Well, um, looking at the time, I'm I'm kind of on my toes. I want to know your results. And then we also got some quick-fire questions. Yes. Um, We're trying out a new thing. We should, I don't know, maybe maybe you can give us a, a quick overview of what, what you have found. Um, because naturally that, yeah, I'm, I've been, I've been puzzled, puzzling to myself what, what you might have found um, in the last 10 minutes. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So yeah, we, so we tested um, the effect of incentives for basically novel results in this paradigm. Uh, and so we found, um, so our first hypothesis was supported. And so we expected people to, when they were in competition, to guess with less information and be less accurate. And that's what we found across both the condition where people just click tiles every second or whether they can need to solve a math problem to click tiles. Well, we didn't find support for the other two hypotheses that, um, one of which was that people would increase their effort in competition. We found no evidence for that with a pretty tight confidence interval around zero. So if there's an effect that was quite small, uh, also an interaction that we predicted, but it depended on there actually being an effect on, on effort. And we don't really know why there is no effect on effort. I mean, other experimental economics work, uh, I mean, that I've looked at that doesn't look p-hacked finds good evidence in some effort paradigms within uh, economics, even ones similar to what we used, um, that it increases effort. So it could be that like we used math problems that were too easy, so there was a, a floor effect. It could be that there was a difference between our task and other tasks. For instance, we had people doing two things at once, like you're guessing on this grid and you're clicking tiles and you're solving math problems. Uh, and so you can actually, well, whereas other experimental economics tasks, they just have people like solving math problems, for instance, when they're in competitions. Who can do it faster? So it could be that the RS people were lazy and they're just like, instead of choosing to, you know, beat their opponent by solving math problems faster, they were just like, I'm just going to guess with less information. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a still unknown. Uh, but the, the general, uh, the main takeaway is that, uh, that within our instantiation of the scientific process where people uh, solve well-defined problems and they have to choose whether to uh, solve them quickly and be more likely to be wrong or take more time and be more likely to be right, but be more likely to be scooped when there's any of these incentives for novel results. People, um, people will just take less time on problems and they're less accurate and they, they kind of do, I guess, shoddier work, uh, you could say. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the basic finding. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think I think that's really cool, and I really, yeah, I like this. I like the setup um, of just doing it in a very simple way to, to try to look at this properly. But of course, it it, it is quite simplistic, uh, not simplistic, but yeah, that, that's a, that's that's a way of saying that, right? So yeah. quite like a sort of basic. Uh, I think you said like a proof of concept, basically. Um, so what do you think is is next for for this kind of uh, for, for looking into um, investigating the incentive structures like this? What do I think is next? I mean, uh, uh, like, how do you do this in a bigger way? Yeah. Can you? So, I think 
these experiments are useful, but they're uh, a bit artificial in many ways. So I think what's nice would be nicest to look at some sort of um, maybe quasi-experiments uh, where there's been a change in incentives because journals instituted policies, and then you can actually see, have some proxy for the quality of research before and after. Something like that would be nice. Or to look at certain cases where we know incentives for priority are higher or lower. So just not to just limit ourselves to these sort of lab uh, situations with um, with specific paradigms that we don't know how they generalize. I think another thing that our field should invest more in is um, theoretical modeling. So because mm-hmm. it's hard to actually look at how incentives work in the real world, um, when you build a model, it's a much more... First of all, it allows you to look at a much wider range of situations than you would be able to look at just by like looking at the real world, but it also provides a much cheaper way to test hypotheses um, than you know every single thing having to run a massive amount of studies and trying to estimate the effect. And so uh, in addition to like this experiment, I'm working on a model of the same idea of how does of competition priority in science and seeing uh, how changing the incentives for second place and third place and things like this uh, affect scientists' behavior, and so far the results are exactly the same across a wide, really wide range of parameters. And so, to me, uh, that tells me that you know this specific effect and specific instantiation that we did an experiment actually gets at something quite general. Uh, so I don't know if those are good ideas. No, I mean, I, mean, I, I definitely yeah. agree. I agree that we should be doing more um, sort of yeah more formalized models because I mean, sure, like in in your case, it it, it worked out such that it. It was that you kind of that it that it worked um, with your intu- with the intuitions or with this experiment, but rightly, I mean, like the idea that you can um, by formalizing it then see like weird um, consequences that like counterintuitive consequences um, from your from that formalization that could, could give you interesting things, right? Um, but yeah, nice. I mean, yes. So also looking at the time, um, we had some other general questions, but maybe let's let's do this new um, quick fire round. Um, we had this. Let's just say Sophia was so excited to have you on that we we've got some questions. <laughs> no, no, I mean like we. So we were, try, we were trying. I think we we're going to try out this 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 new thing of asking our guests um, questions, like yeah. both both sort of questions with options, and apparently like things have been added since we last <laughs> since since I last looked at this. But um, so also some some questions that are, are more um, open. I, I you you just. I couldn't hear you for a second. You oh, you said. so yeah, okay. So um, the the questions that are both um, like questions with two options, and I think, and apparently we also now have another question that is that is open. So uh, the idea is that Sam, you just did you add that? Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe, maybe I we'll heard your voice. Maybe we'll put exactly. We haven't. Like, maybe Sam will just ask all of these, but maybe we'll put this yes. one further towards the end so that we we can start with some of those. Uh, just option questions, and you just answer as quickly as possible. Okay, so this is like my experiment, like you're forcing me to answer quickly and just yeah. provide you with low quality, low quality. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. parallel. But yeah, I think Sam, you can start. Oh, is this? Oh wait, actually, quiet? yes, I think I think you should just do all of them, Sam. Well, we just want to make sure you're not asleep. <laughs> well, for the record, we were able to see him. His eyes were uh, were open. He looked awake. Yeah, I think you can you can do the quick fire round, Sam. So invested of not wanting to interrupt. Uh, okay, quick five questions. Uh, stats or theory? Theory. Nice. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Nice. 
Uh, data analysis or paper writing? Paper writing. Cool. Uh, why do we have stats or theory twice? No reliability. Phase factors. I don't want to answer that one. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> They're fine. They correlate. Usually they correlate very highly with one another. So that's, you know, it's fine. Nice. Okay. Uh, so a more open one. Um, so with your kind of interest in the incentives and I think you've kind of honed in on specific ones rather than being kind of yeah. talking about incentives in this sort of vague, catchable way. Yeah. Do you think that there's a particular kind of incentive within science at the minute that's more harmful than the others? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't I don't know that this is going to be the best answer, but I think this is one that I would like to see changed. So I think the incentive to produce work instead of criticize other people's work is a really bad one. So, um, you know, science is in, in theory based on the idea of, um, of, you know, people, some subset of people producing things and then uh, maybe even trying to convince other people something is true and other people trying to tear it down. Um, and by tearing it down, you know, you, you're able to, um, sometimes make it stronger, but sometimes just weed, weed out shitty stuff. Um, I think the problem is now is that uh, it's really hard to get criticism published. Uh, criticism gets lower prestige than does novel work. And so it's kind of like everyone wants to build stuff and no one wants to do the maintenance. And the problem is that when you don't do the maintenance, shit falls apart. And so um, I've had this experience too, publishing a commentary on, on some work. Um, but like for me, I would love to spend a lot of time just criticizing stuff, criticizing people's theory and, um, yeah, looking at for papers, looking for errors in papers and things like this. But I think that, um, I don't know how this would happen, but I think we really need more incentives for people to, um, to criticize openly at talks, not just like, you know, not say stuff because you're going to make people feel bad, although you should say it in a, in a way that, you know, tries not to make them feel bad. Um, and, um, you know, make it easier to publish commentaries on papers, make it easier to see when papers, when there are, you know, commentaries that point out flaws, um, all of the stuff that goes with it. I think that if we don't do that, then there's no incentive for people to produce stuff that's right because it never gets criticized. Uh, uh, and so, um, yeah, yeah, I would, I would love to see that one changed in my lifetime. Nice. That's, that's amazing. I think it, it really ties into the whole, like, if science is self-correcting, that's exactly what we need, right? That that's the procedure of correcting things. Yeah, we need um, to allow it to, to self-correct rather than just relying on what. How did James Heather put that the the magical process TM? <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess we've got a couple of final ones. Um, so one that we ask everybody that comes on is whether you have suggestions for other kind of awesome early career researchers that we should uh, kind of talk to and that other people should know about? So within the field of like reproducibility stuff, you mean? Uh, any. I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to pick my friends uh, <laughs> because I think some of my friends are really, you know, everyone thinks all their friends are great researchers, right? So 
Maybe not all of them, but so I think maybe I'll send you guys some suggestions, uh, maybe by email or something. But I, yeah, I don't know. I don't you know don't want to do it on air in case you leave anyone out. I have names. I certainly have names of people. Um, well, just give us give us the first two that come into mind. Come to mind. Well, we don't need to pressure. No, no, I can I can see the pain. I can see that question as well. Um, but yeah, Sam, we've got we've got uh, we've oh. got another question. No, actually, also well, the, the the other one that we always ask people is um, if you have any advice for um, for early career researchers. Advice, yeah. Now, so now I get to be giving people advice. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. Don't take my advice. Maybe. What but... advice would you have given yourself? In your first year of your, if you could go back and talk to your, yourself first year of grad school, what would be one thing you would tell yourself? Yeah, I don't know. Learn from math. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good one. Uh, so now I'm, I'm actually, so because I'm doing a lot of uh, theoretical modeling, um, I'm going back and like reteaching myself calculus basically because I haven't used it in so long, uh, and I feel like it's really intimidating right now because I don't even remember and I don't understand this stuff, but I don't think it would be that hard to learn. And I think just, there's a quote, I forgot if it's, um, if it was Haldane, uh, by a famous biologist, let's see, uh, or I think, anyways, it was a, it was a, it was a, um, like a really eminent biologist who said, uh, an ounce of algebra is worth uh, a ton of verbal argument, I believe, if I'm not misquoting it. So for me, that's really like, you know, knowing a little bit of math really gets you a long way and, and helps ground discussions in a way that uh, verbal argument doesn't. So, sorry, that's, sorry for this shitty advice for the curious teachers. I'll try and think of, I'll try and think of something. I think that's more great. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's I great think advice. You're, you're, to, you're speaking to Sophia in my heart and Sam probably as well. Yeah. Wait, there's just, there's a new math kind of club opening about Oxford for people to learn algebra together. <laughs> so I think a lot of people, there's, there are people who, who realize that that's really important. And I do think that basically when we've asked this question, we've had that kind of uh, response from most people so far, right? Basically just get the, get the skills, get the skills that are important, look more into the, the hard stuff. Here's, I have a better one, you know, I have Ooh. a better one. Work on work on something that you care about and uh, and and don't sacrifice the quality of your work because at the end of the day you're probably not going to get a job in academia uh, but at least you will have uh, at least you will have you know been paid shitty and been stressed out but have been working have been you know doing what you love to do um, Otherwise, you know, you get paid shitty and stressed out and you don't do what you love to do and then you don't get a job anyways and then you think, why did I ever do all this stuff in the first place? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess on that both insanely optimistic and pessimistic mm-hmm. note, um, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, yeah, th- thank you all you guys. It was really fun. Yeah, yeah it was really interesting. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Awesome. Bye. Uh, bye.